Father, we thank you for every good and perfect gift. Lord, we look to you because you are the only one that can answer prayer. You are the only one that knows us better than anyone knows us, and you love us more than anyone could ever love us. For, for we thank you, Lord, that you sent your son, Jesus, who lived a life, a perfect one for us, died for us, and rose for us. So we pray for this day, Lord, that you would move among us, change us, O oh God, make us more conformed into the likeness of your son, Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray. The people of God said, amen. For God so loved the world. How many of you have memorized that? I think many unbelievers also know that verse. For God so loved the world. And when you memorize that verse, we had to remember what the verse said. But I think sometimes we don't reflect on what the verse does not say. The verse does not say, for God only loves Christians. For God so loved the world. It also doesn't say, for God only loves those people who are really, really, really good people. <laughs> for God so loved the world. It also doesn't say, for God only loves those people who are in opposite sex relationships. It says, for God so loved the world. But if I could be honest with you, I think one of the most misunderstood words today is the word love. When the world says love is love, what does that mean? You do you. I think that would be the modern day definition of love. You do you. Is that the way God calls us to love? Is that the way that God loves us? You know, we can't understand John 3.16 apart from Romans 5, verses 6 through 10, where Paul writes, he explains how God loves us. He explains when he loves us. It says that God loves us while we were still powerless, while we were still weak. A couple verses later, Romans 5, verse 8, it says, God loves us while we were still sinners. And it's so interesting. That word in Greek translated still, you know what it means? Still. <laughs> still sinners. Not getting your life together, not becoming a better person, not like starting on the right track. Still sinners. God loves us. Like, that's amazing as it is, but it goes further, and it says, he loves us while we were enemies. Who does that? God does. And he's calling us to do the same. The gay community, they're not our enemies. They're created in the image of God, and they need Jesus just as we need Jesus. Just as God loved me, 
while I was still weak, while I was still in my sin, while I was even an enemy, God loved me. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Tomorrow, my parents and I are going to share our kind of more full family testimony, so don't miss that. But I'm going to give kind of a just very brief testimony. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Uh, My parents raised me with very traditional Chinese values that I could distill to three things. Obey your parents, do well in school, and practice piano. (laughs) I wrestled with my uh, sexuality from a young age. If we could go to my slide, there we go. Um, But I had this secret that I kept hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. I began living openly as a gay gay man in the gay community. So I told my parents. Devastated my mom and dad, but through that crisis, my mother came to faith, and then my father did as well. Well, I went the total opposite direction, wanted nothing to do with Christianity. I thought they'd lost their minds. I was like, good for you, not for me. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs. I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. And to be really clear, not all gay men do drugs. Not all gay men are promiscuous. I'm just telling my story, but I also want to tell you that when you encounter Jesus, he's going to impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like my classmates, I was broke. If I was going to do drugs, I needed to find a way to support my habit. And I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. So I moved from Louisville. I'm from Chicago originally. I was going to dental school in Louisville. I then decided to move on to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. My parents had no clue that I was doing drugs. But they knew my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So they tried to reach out to me, the love of Christ. I wanted nothing nothing to do with it. They came to visit me one time in Atlanta, and I told them to get out. You know, the interesting thing was they were not preaching at me. They were not telling me I was living in sin. I knew what they believed. But just the fact that God had so radically transformed their lives that they radiated Jesus, that was offensive to me. And I told him to leave. Before my dad left, he gave me his Bible. As soon as they left, I took my dad's Bible 
and I threw in the trash can. I wanted nothing to do with God. And after that visit, it was obvious that I was hopeless. But my parents committed not to focus upon hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over a hundred prayer warriors from their church, from their Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. My mom began to pray a bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She spent hours every single morning in her prayer closet on her knees, crying out to God, reading the Bible, interceding for me, for many, many others. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, <laughs> and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large amount of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. Legal here in California, right? <laughs> with that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling home dreading making that phone call, just imagining the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mom's first words were, son, are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice that Paul chooses not to say that it's God's anger. He doesn't say that it's God's wrath, but it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you could believe it or not, because <laughs> I hadn't called home in years, and she knew this was God's answer to her prayer. So she hung up the phone, fighting back the tears, and she knew 
she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone was a calculator, an adding machine. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is, is in a safe place compared to before. <laughs> and he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And when I got out of prison, this list of blessings was longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking on the cell block and I passed by this garbage can and I thought, this is my life. I was about to pass it by and something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, picked it up and it was a Gideon's New Testament. Took it back to my cell, opened up, opened up that book, good book. For the first time, I read through the entire gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking, this is the word of God. And I certainly was not thinking, this is the answer. I just thought, I've got tons of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. <laughs> but as many of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our our Bibles is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a free sight. And I thought things were going to get worse. I was wrong. I was called into the nurse's office. The nurse sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words, wrote something on a piece of paper, slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. The days after were dark and lonely. I was sentenced to six years, better than 10 years to life, but news of my HIV status felt like a death sentence. One night I was laying in my bed and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. Someone did scribble something and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. See, at the most hopeless point in my life, God was using the words, 
penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Judah, to tell me that if God could have a plan for Judah in exile, in rebellion, he could have a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. God was convicting me of my idols, which were many. The most obvious was drugs. Within a few months, he delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing in mind other idols. And there was just this one thing that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain and I asked him his opinion. And to my surprise, this chaplain told me the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he even gave me a book explaining that view. So I was like, great. Now I can have my cake and eat it too. I took that book in the hopes of finding justification, not just justification, biblical justification for same-sex relationships. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. Let me just tell you from a human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming, to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God and his word. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. I want to find anything that might bless a monogamous same-sex relationship. I went through the whole Bible, cover to cover, several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked. And I couldn't find any. So I was at this turning point, a crossroads. Either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship by freeing myself from my sexuality and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. That's true. But don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore God doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who might say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. (laughs) But after reading the Bible, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Can I say it again? Unconditional love. It's not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires, whether sexual or romantic. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay. It's not even heterosexual for that matter because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. 
God says, be holy for I am holy. You know, I used to think if I were to become a Christian, I had to become a heterosexual. What does that mean? I need to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. As a matter of fact, I even thought the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. <laughs> but I realized that even if a man had opposite sex attractions, he would still need to flee temptation and resist sin. So actually, heterosexuality may be the right direction, it's just not the right goal. And if you think about this, God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. <laughs> but neither did God ever say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Instead, God says, be holy, for I am holy. Therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That's not the right goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity because change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life, and he called me to full-time ministry while I was in prison of all places, and I realized it no matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my call to ministry would remain the same regardless of location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and he shortened my prison sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on a ministry after prison, I better learn more about the Bible. So I called them, collected my parents, and I told them I think God's calling me to full-time ministry, and I asked them to mail me an application to Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison. I was really excited when I got it, tore it open, began filling it out until I realized I needed references. The only people I could find was a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references. <laughs> so amazingly, I was actually accepted. I was released from prison in July of 2001, started the very next month in August. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis 2007, received my doctorate of ministry in 2014, and then I had the really cool privilege of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote this together. She wrote chapter one. I wrote chapter two. She wrote on the odd, top, at odd chapters. I wrote the even chapters. Um, but this book, there's a study guide in the back that several Christian schools are now using as a textbook. How cool is that? Our testimony is now a textbook. But in this book on the left, Out of a Far Country, um, I introduced this concept of holy sexuality. It was very, toward the end, just a very, very short chapter of only six pages, and I always knew that I needed to flesh that idea out. 
So in 2019, so right before COVID, my book came out. So this is like a COVID book. Um, but uh, amazingly though, and by the way, I mean, I know a lot of people did reading uh, over COVID, but the books that came out during COVID kind of just went under the radar. Uh, but amazingly, uh, this book was named 2020 Book of the Year for Social Issues by Outreach Magazine. And the reason why I wrote this book, any author, they don't want to kind of redo what other people have already done. And there's a, several books out there that's talking about what the Bible says and um, how we need to be clear, you know, what is sexual immorality. But oftentimes, biblical sexuality messages or books is telling us what not to do. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. And those are important for us to know. But we can't build a Christian life on God's no. What's God's yes? This is a hope of my book to help us better understand God's yes for sexuality. It's quite simple. It's just two paths, either chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. And that is good news for all. And I'm pretty excited um, that even though I wrote this book um, in the end of 2019, beginning of 2020 when it came out, um, I wrote this in the two years since, I realized that I wrote this for adults, for college students, maybe even for some you know, mature high school students, but mainly college and above. I realized we need something for teens. And there's very little out there. So right now, I'm working on turning holy sexuality into a teen curriculum. So we have this. So there's going to be several versions. Um, I first initially was creating one for Christian schools and for churches, but then I realized that I wasn't practicing what I was preaching. Because my parents and I have been, say, have been saying for years that the job to teach sex education belongs in the hands of parents. And yet when we look at all the resources, they're for Christian schools or churches, great. But even what the youth pastor does should be supplemental, not primary, right? The job, the primary job to teach sex education does not belong to Pastor Joe, does it? He should do it, but he should not be the only place. Regrettably, sometimes that's the case. And so we need better resources for parents. So there's going to be a family version. So mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, in the privacy in their own homes, pull the kids together, the teens together, and go through these. There's going to be 10 video lessons that's going to be online. So if you'd like more information, you could go to where the curriculum will be, holysexuality.com, and you can put your name and your email. So it's not out yet. We're hoping that the end of the year, I'm working at it right now, and it's, there's, there's going to be a video curriculum. So basically, you don't really have to do anything. You just have to know how to press play and pause. Watch a video for about 10 minutes. It'll stop and you'll have some discussion questions with your teen and then watch another video, have some more discussion and then finish. Basically, that's it. So that'll take about 30 to 40 minutes each lesson and we'll have 10 of those, maybe 10 or 12 of those. We're, I'm still kind of figuring out. There's so much stuff I want to put in there and, and yet, you know, I, I can't have like, you know, a 50 lesson. I guess I could, but... And I, you know, we want your kids to live after that. 
But uh, so I'm super excited about this. Uh, you can help spread the word. Uh, but in this curriculum and in my book, I begin with this concept of identity. Because if there's one thing that I think that we miss when it comes to sexuality, when I think there's one thing that we miss about understanding our loved one who identifies as gay or lesbian or even trans, so we don't fully comprehend that they have conflated their sexuality with who they are. So we can't even talk about sinful behavior if they can't separate their behavior from their identity. Who am I? Who are you? Who are we? How do we answer that question? We, we all ask ourselves that question at multiple points in our lives. Teens, I struggle with my identity as a teenager. As adults, we also struggle with our identity. Midlife crisis is a crisis of identity. For some, identity is shaped by family, friends, or even their culture. Others shape their identity by their work. I'm a lawyer. Or by sports. I'm a football player or by hobbies, I'm a gamer. Still others put their sole identity in their sexuality, I am gay. In their self-perception of gender, I am trans. And yet do these substitutes truly describe who we are or what we feel, what we think, and what we do? You might ask, like, what does it matter? You see, how we answer that question, who am I? How we all answer that question, who am I? Impacts how we think, the choices we make, and the relationships that we build. If I said, I'm a lawyer, what's a lawyer gonna be thinking about most of the day? Law, cases. Person says, I'm a football player. Is that gonna impact the choices he makes? What's he gonna do right after school? He's gonna to choose to go practice football. A gamer, will that impact the friendships and the relationship that she or she, he has? Of course. You see, our thoughts and our actions are influenced in large part by how we answer this question, who am I? suggesting this close relationship between essence and ethics. Let me explain. Who we are, essence, impacts how we live, ethics. And actually, there's this vicious cycle going on because the opposite is true as well. How we live, our ethics, impacts who we are, our essence. If you have a flawed view of who you are, you're gonna have a flawed personal ethic. You know, I'm a partier, that's my identity. I have a flawed view of who I am, right? Is that not gonna affect how I'm gonna live? I'm gonna have a flawed view of how I live. And vice versa. You see, personhood affects practice. 
Practice affects personhood. When I lived as a gay man years ago, before I was converted, my whole world was gay. All my friends were gay. I lived in an apartment complex that was 90% or 95% gay men. Now, I, I wanna clarify something. We hear a lot today where people are, they say, I'm part of the LGBTQ plus community. There's actually no such thing as an LGBTQ plus community. There's a gay community. There's a lesbian community. There's a trans community. There's a bisexual, well, lesbians and gays think bisexuals are just fooling themselves. <laughs> you have, you know, so you have these other communities, but there's not a, the L and the G, there's not really an even an L and a G community. I mean, yeah, when I lived as a gay man, certainly I had some token lesbian friends, but it was because they liked gay men. I mean, to hang out with. I mean, how do you define a lesbian? Lesbian like, this is not a trick question. <laughs> right, lesbian like women. Gay men like men. Okay, so gay men like men, they didn't like women, so. There really isn't, and I mean, there wasn't, there's not much overlap. I didn't really understand lesbian. They didn't know how to dress, they liked to fight, they drove Subarus, and they didn't know how to dress, so I didn't, I don't understand. There was not a lot of overlap. I'm just saying. I mean, even now today, now, of course, now they might come together to fight for rights, but actually you're finding now today that there's fracturing. What, what is sexuality based on? Men like, like anyone? Like, I mean, if there's no, if there's no such, such thing as a male, so they don't like any, I mean, it's just, they, they like their mind. Like, if you think you're a man, then I like you. No, men like biological men. Again, not a true question. Lesbian like? Right. And so actually, there's this fracturing where people are like, okay, this has gone too far. This whole gender theory where, no, gay men, they like men and, and they don't reject biological sex. And, you know, for you to say there's multiple, multiple genders, then why is it then when people get gender reassignment surgery or what they're now calling gender affirming surgery, how come there's only two options? Hmm. Interesting. So anyway, so... I was, my whole world was gay. It was not lesbian, it was not trans, it was not LGBT plus, Q plus, it was gay. Midtown Atlanta, if you walk through there, you'd be hard pressed to find a woman there. Maybe she was lost. <laughs> but it's all gay men. I live my apartment complex, 90%, 95% gay men. I, I worked out at the gay gym. I bought groceries at what we nicknamed the gay Kroger. I bought my new sports car from a gay car dealer. My bookkeeper was gay. My housekeeper was gay. Everything and everyone around me affirmed what my flesh was saying, I am gay. You see, I really believe that 
this is more preliminary than convincing someone that their behavior is wrong. Because when you tell someone this is sin, they do not hear you saying, oh, you're saying my behavior is sin, got it, no. Oh, you're saying my relationship is sinful, okay. Oh, you're saying my desires that I have are not God's will. No, they don't hear you saying that. They hear you saying that their whole person from head to toe is reprehensible to God. That's why it's so offensive. How dare you, right? When we're like, what? I'm just saying your behavior is wrong because we can, as followers of Christ, we can separate our behavior from our person. Christians, we can hate our sin without hating ourselves. I couldn't do that. Before I knew Christ, I could not hate my sin before I hated myself. See, this misunderstanding that being gay, even the verb that we put before gay, it's not feeling gay. It's not doing gay. That would be more accurate, but it's what? Being. What does that verb being point to? Our essence. Being gay no longer means what I'm attracted to. Doesn't mean what I desire, what I do. It has wrongly become who I am. How many of you guys have a gay loved one or friend? Or a lesbian, gay or lesbian loved one or friend? If you were to ask them, explain to me how you define gay. You could say, I know what that means, but I just wanna hear you define that. They will not say, when I say I am gay, I mean this is what I do. Will they say that? When I say I am gay, I mean this is how I feel. No, what are they gonna say? When I say I am gay, I mean this is who I am. So we see, and, and we still think of it, I mean, correctly as behavior, but they don't. They, they don't. This shift from what to who, this shift from what I do, what I feel, to who I am has created this radically distorted personhood where today we are categorizing humanity according to sexual desires. Did God intend that? Did God intend for human beings to be separated according to sexual desires or any desire for that matter? I don't know of any other feeling that we've made it who I am. Like, I mean, even if someone says, I am happy, we don't think like that's who you are. We think that's what you feel right now. Great. Any behavior, like any sin behavior. If you know someone who's a gossiper, you're a gossiper. When we say that, we don't mean that's who you are, but what you do, so stop it. <laughs> right? An adulteress, that's not who she is, but what she does. And yet, when it comes to gay, especially when we add being gay, think about the words we use, being gay. It has become fully who a person is. So if it's not who we are, then what is sexuality? You see, sexuality should be better understood that it's not who we are, but how we are. Not who we are, but how we are. And when we make this wrong error and make it who we are, it's an error of category. In other words, we are making it a category of personhood, not experience. Experience meaning my feelings and my actions. That's experience, not personhood. And these terms, heterosexual, bisexual, homosexual, or gay, straight, bi, it turns our desires into personhood. It turns our experience 
into essence, where now experience, it reigns supreme. And everything else has to bow down before it. That's our world today. Experience is everything. Experience is even truth. We're no longer sola scriptura, right? What does that mean? Scripture alone, right? Only the Bible. Scripture alone. We're no longer sola scriptura. You know what we're in today? Sola experientia. Experience alone. That's the only thing the world cares about. If you feel something, that's your truth. If you think about it, you do you. So, we're back to the beginning. Who am I? Who are you? Who are we? How do we answer that question? And I think we need to actually, the best way to wrap our minds around understanding same-sex attractions, understanding how to share Christ with those in the gay community and the lesbian community and the trans community is first knowing how to answer this question, who am I? And theologians have answered that question. It's a discipline, sub-discipline of theology called theological anthropology. I know it's a big word, but theological anthropology is just anthropology, study of humanity, right? Study of humanity is essentially trying to answer, ask that, answer that question, who am I? But anthropologists today begin with the wrong premise, that there's no God, right? They believe in evolution, that we're just kind of like, we're just these evolved beings, and we're just, this is basically a comparative analysis of different cultures. So that's the wrong way to start. Theological anthropology is a study of humanity through God's eyes. We can't properly understand human sexuality without beginning with theological anthropology. And that, as big as that, confusing as that sounds, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. And two specifically that help us to understand sexuality. Number one, we're created in the image of God. Two, we're also fallen. We're created in the image of God, but we're also all fallen. So how does that help me understand my gay friend? Well, four things. Theological anthropology helps us by rebuking the arrogant condemner. You know that person that might look down their nose at the gay community. They're ruining our country. No sin is ruining our country. Regardless of anyone's age, sex, or ethnicity, every human being is created in the image of God. Regardless of whether someone is submission to God or not, regardless of whether someone has same-sex attractions, opposite-sex opposite attractions, both or none, we're all created in the image of God. When we say that a person should be treated with respect, it's not because of our commitment to justice. It's because every human being is created in his image. And see, that's different than saying someone is a child of God. Don't confuse those. Every human being is created in the image of God, whether they know Christ or not. Not everyone is a child of God, yet we pray that everyone will become a child of God. Because before, if you know Jesus, you're a child of God. Before, you knew Jesus, before I knew Jesus, I was not a child of God. Paul called 
me before I was a child of God, before all of us were children of God, we were not a child of God, we're a child of wrath. It's because Jesus reconciled us to God that makes us children of God. Amen? Amen. So being created in the image of God means that every person has inestimable value and dignity and should, should be treated with respect. So actually, the imago Dei, the image of God, is the only true foundation for justice. Second, theological anthropology it avoids a common incorrect diagnosis. You might have heard something like this. You know, I mean, if you're not feeling well, you want to get the correct diagnosis. A correct diagnosis leads to a correct treatment. Incorrect diagnosis leads to an incorrect treatment. And I think we've diagnosed this incorrectly. Many of you may have heard something like this, that the root causes of homosexuality are an absentee father, dominant mother, or abuse in one's childhood. How many of you guys have heard something like that before? Where we say that's the root cause. Now, I do believe that it's an influence. Things in our past can influence us positively or negatively. Abuse gravely negatively influences a person. Yet, even as severe as abuse is, that's not the root cause. That's a huge difference. And to blame our present problems on our childhood or on our parents is not biblical. It's Freudian. And unfortunately, sometimes we're more busy chasing after Sigmund Freud than after Jesus Christ. The Bible says that this is sinful behavior. What's the root cause of sinful behavior? our sin nature. Certainly my past can compound my sin nature. It can influence it in a negative way, but it's not the root cause. So what's the right diagnosis? I'm a sinner and I have a sin nature. And if that's the right diagnosis, what's the right treatment? Sin is the problem. Jesus is the answer. And for those of you in this room who might be a parent, who might have that wayward child, you often wake up mornings and say, God, what did I do wrong? Please hear me. It's not your fault. Perfect parenting never guarantees perfect children, does it? Look at Adam and Eve. They had a perfect father. They still rebelled. Anyone think they can do better than God? You know, the job of a Christian parent is not to produce godly children. Parents, you might be thinking, what? That's my hope. A hope and your job is not the same. It's not your job because you can't even do that. If you could do that, you'd be God. And here's a little secret, you're not. <laughs> the job of a Christian parent is not to produce godly children. The job of a Christian parent is just to be a godly parent. You be godly. 
pray your heart out that your children will follow Jesus. And then let God be God. Amen? Amen. Third, theological anthropology affirms repentance and rejects sinful acts and desires. There's this growing movement now within Bible-believing churches that are saying, oh, these people, they just can't help them. I mean, they just are gay. And they believe same-sex marriage is not God's will, but they're like, so they just have to be celibate for the rest of their life. So there's this movement now. It's growing. It's actually fracturing denominations right now. It's a movement within Bible-believing Christianity called the Gay Celibate Christian Movement, whether it's part of spiritual friendship or revoice. Charles Spurgeon, how many of you guys know Charles Spurgeon? He said a very important verse, uh, quote, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. A five-year-old can do that. Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. Because the trajectory of almost right is wrong. Gay celibate Christianity does not affirm true repentance because they say they hold to traditional sexuality, but this is their version of traditional sexuality. Oh, just the marriage is wrong. Just the act is wrong. Everything else is okay. I, I'll be honest. I used to think that. I'll be honest. I was guilty of that. And then I read the Bible. And then I read what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount. If a man looks lustfully after woman, He's okay as long as he doesn't act on it. Is, is that what that verse says? I, I always get confused there. <laughs> Just don't act on it. Is that what Jesus says? He's fine. He hasn't sinned as long as he doesn't act on it. And yet, that's what Christians are saying today, isn't it? Just don't act on it. Read the Bible. Good idea. Here's the answers. If a man looks lustfully at a woman... He's already committed adultery. I know that sounds like people talk about, oh, you know, there's six passages we're going to talk about next hour. Those are clobber passages. Anyone who calls any verse a clobber passage isn't a Christian. Because, I mean, if we're really going to talk about clobber passages, how about for no one seeks after God? How about the wages of sin is death? There's a lot of other clobber passages. Even if a man looks lustfully after a woman, he's committed adultery. How dare us say anything as precious as his word as something that clobbers us? It might hurt, but I think sometimes holiness requires a little bit of pain. So... I realize that if a person just says that the act is wrong, as long as I don't act on it, but everything else is okay and everything else, like they even say like, actually most of my aspect of when I say gay is actually things that are good. I say that rejects repentance. Repentance is about repenting about everything that is not God's will. Now, I'm not saying that every time you're tempted is sin, that's different. And in my book, I have a whole chapter on temptation and a whole chapter on desire. We need to fully understand that. But we need to, we, none of us, don't identify by your sin. Don't identify with your struggle. When I was going through AA and NA, you know, everyone, 
would begin and say, hi, I'm an alcoholic. And I did that because everyone else was doing that. And after a while, I was like, that just doesn't sit right with me. That is not who I am. Amen? Amen. Now, I might struggle. I don't, I don't have a problem with someone saying, I struggle with alcoholism. I struggle with drug addiction. I struggle with lying. I struggle with, but to say that's who I am. Don't, I mean, don't say you're an adulterous Christian. Don't say you're a lying Christian, a gossiping, because if you do, I would say, repent. Repent. The gift of repentance is available for all. Repent. Lastly, beginning with theological anthropology helps us to answer the born gay question. Aren't people born gay? Christians, Bible-believing Christians are even saying that. That's just the way they are. I mean, we just, we just have to have compassion. There's, there's a whole slew of speakers now that are like, I think their compassion is driving their theology. They're trying to be missional before their theologians. And of course, are we called to be loving? Yes. But their loving looks more like you do you. Just do whatever. And, and I just, I'm just going to love you, whatever. Where they're making their love a means to an end. We love as a means to the end of Jesus because Jesus means transformation. Jesus means the old is dead, gone, the new has come. That's Jesus. Following Jesus means denying yourself, picking up a cross and following me. So, I mean, all the research and, and, and maybe short, I'm gonna show you a little short video uh, that talks a little bit about the research, but nothing has been proven yet. Nothing has been proven. And science is inconclusive. It looks like genetics might play a role, but it's very, very small, not, not major role. And at the end of the day, people still say, well, the Bible, you know, people are born gay. The Bible doesn't answer this question. They're wrong. The Bible does. Because even though people think they're born gay, you know what Jesus says? He says, you must be born again. You may think you're born an alcoholic. You must be born again. You may think you're born a liar, a cheater. You must be born again. The old is gone, the new has come. That is not a message just for the gay community. That is a message for the whole world. You must be born again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us new life in Jesus. Help us, Lord, to live fully for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen.